Hey, Hannah. Hey, Kate. What do you got there today to drink? Today, I am enjoying a cozy cup of black winter tea with a little bit of milk. Oh, yum. Perfect for this rainy, dreary day. Yeah, I would agree. What are you enjoying? Similarly, a Earl Grey tea. Mm. So another black tea with (laughs) a little bit of milk. Delicious. Again, perfect for this (laughs) rainy day afternoon. It absolutely is. You ready to get into it? Let's do it. Howdy Howdy from from Houston. Houston. I'm Kate. And I'm Hannah. And today we are going to dive into our favorite thing from a recent organ block that we finished, gastroenterology or GI. So this is all things gut from your mouth all the way to where you poop. External anal sphincter. So Hannah... What did you find interesting, most interesting, about the GI system? Well, the whole class overall was great. You know, it's just, it's one of those systems of the body that we still have so much left to learn about. I couldn't help but feel like whenever we were going through this course, it was similar to the way scientists describe exploring the ocean. You know, we've only explored the tiniest amount and we still have so much more to learn. So overall, I just really enjoyed this block. I just thought it was really fun. Um, Specifically though, I really liked learning about celiac disease. So celiac disease is a condition that's associated with a poor immune response to gluten. So gluten is a protein that's found in wheat, barley, rye, and a few other things. So Kate and I both follow a gluten-free diet, and so I just found this whole topic to be really fascinating. Um, Neither of us have been diagnosed with celiac disease, to be clear, but it's just really interesting to learn about a disease that you kind of relate to. So when you eat gluten, just to kind of give some background on how this all works, it triggers an autoimmune reaction, which basically means your body attacks itself. So the body starts to produce these autoantibodies, causing the destruction of your small intestine when you eat gluten. So you absorb a lot of nutrients in your small intestine. So this condition is often associated with a myriad of nutrient deficiencies. But to break it down a little bit more... Gluten, when you digest it, is broken down into two parts, glutenin and gliadin. And the gliadin is the part that actually causes the problem. So this protein called tissue transglutaminase, or we'll call it TTG, it's a lot easier to say. So TTG, it's a protein in your body, modifies the gliadin. So it transforms it to look a little bit different. And that new form of gliadin is what actually kicks off this immune response. So the body then starts to release these antibodies. A couple of them are called anti-TTG, which that same TTG that we just mentioned, anti-endomesial and anti-deaminated gliadin antibodies. So those are a lot of long names for things, but essentially these are the markers in your body that doctors look for when they're trying to diagnose someone with celiac disease. So when it comes to the diagnosis, how do they actually do it? Well, it all starts with a blood test, and you look for, starting out, IgA-TTG, which is just an antibody against TTG, that same TTG. And IgA is just a type of antibody that your body produces. So this is one thing that you can look for on a blood test. But some people have a generally low IgA, so they won't show an elevated IgA against TTG because their IgA is generally low. 
So you have to do something different for this group of people. So you also have to look for um, IgG TTG. Again, a lot of letters, but IgG is very similar to IgA. It's just another type of antibody against TTG. So those are a couple things you can look for in a blood test. You can also look for this thing called HLA, which stands for human leukocyte antigen. So HLA is a gene complex on a chromosome. It's a little complicated, but essentially people with celiacs often are associated with this marker called HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8. A lot of letters, a lot of numbers, but all to say these are just little markers that doctors can look for in gene testing and blood testing. You can also look for kind of a last-minute thing. This one's less sensitive, anti-endomesial antibody. So that was one of those things in that long list of long-worded antibody things <laughs> when your body's reacting to gluten. However, all that being said, with all those little blood tests and things that you can do, if you're already following a gluten-free diet, that can cause false results. So let's say you have started noticing abdominal pain, bloating, other kind of problems, and you start to eliminate foods from your diet to try and make yourself feel better. So you decide to eliminate gluten, and all of a sudden, you feel a lot better. So you decide to go to the doctor and tell them about your experience and say, hey, I stopped eating gluten and made me feel a lot better. I think I might have celiac disease. Well, in order for them to do these blood tests, you need to have been eating gluten so that your body has all of these antibodies actively flowing through your blood. So if you've already been following a gluten-free diet, these, these blood tests could be absolutely false. So that can be you know, a challenge when it comes to actually diagnosing celiac disease. The last option for diagnosing celiac disease is to do something a little more invasive than a blood test, and it's a biopsy of your small intestine. So basically what they go in, what they do is they go in and they get a little sample of your small intestine, just a little scrape, and they look at it on some slides and they look to see if you have similar cell destruction that you would see in celiac disease. And that would be a really clear way to diagnose it, aside from doing all the blood tests. So... What we learned is most often doctors do like to have a combination of both the blood tests and the biopsy to truly confirm that somebody might have celiac disease. All of that being said, at the end of the day, there's no cure for celiac disease, but there's a really great way to manage it, and that is to just continue following a gluten-free diet. All of your symptoms tend to go away if you have celiac disease and you, and you follow the gluten-free diet. So you could go through the whole mess of getting diagnosed, <laughs> get the biopsy, get the blood tests to have that same kind of end result. It does provide a lot of clarity and it's really good to just kind of have that peace of mind knowing that that's what your condition is. But a lot of people have different sensitivities to different foods and gluten being one of them. So whatever works for you as an individual to be comfortable with your diet and your diagnosis and everything within that sphere is really up to you as an individual. Well, and again, healthcare is such an individualistic thing, what yeah, you want to really do with is. your body. Yeah, but it, it is interesting to me that if you think you might be celiac, so you stop eating gluten in order for them to diagnose you, you have to eat gluten and go through all the pain that, or whatever your symptoms are for at least 24 hours, if not longer for some people. Yeah, it's pretty wild. That was actually a conversation I had with my own doctor. So I've been following a gluten-free diet for about eight and a half years now. And I've done some of my own like self-testing when it comes to reincorporating things into my diet to see what my reaction is. And 
it's been pretty consistent that I have the exact same reaction whenever I reintroduce gluten. So I had these same kind of conversations with my own doctor and was curious about getting diagnosed for celiac just to see if that was possibly what was going wrong. And he kind of, he didn't convince me not to, but he kind of just laid out the pros and cons of, you know, pursuing a diagnosis like that. And at the end of the day, I just decided it wasn't really worth it to go through the, either the paying, paying for the tests or just the general invasiveness of getting a biopsy done and decided to just continue doing what resolved all my symptoms anyway, which is following a gluten-free diet. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of with you on that. I, I doubt I have celiac, but at the end of the day, like the end result is you're doing the same thing. So. Yeah. And you can have a sensitivity to gluten without having celiac disease. You know, there are a lot of other reactions people have to, to gluten other than being celiac. Right. Yeah. You can just be sensitive or allergic to it or something like that without being celiac. Yeah. It's wild. It is. Human body so cool. All right, Kate. What was the thing you found most fascinating from our GI block? I found our lecture about prebiotics and probiotics really interesting, actually. So I first heard about probiotics, I think in high school when I was taking an antibiotic and my friend's mom was like, oh, make sure you're taking a probiotic with that. I was like, what's a probiotic? So kind of as a little bit of background, a probiotic is the actual microorganism that's either in the supplement or that's already in your body. So microorganism meaning bacteria. So probiotics are the bacteria. And then if you've heard of prebiotics, maybe you've heard of it on a previous episode uh, when Hannah and I compared different Olipop flavors. Prebiotics are the food for the good gut bacteria. And I say good with air quotes because good meaning they are symbiotic and helping us rather than hurting us like a harmful bacteria might cause an infection. So prebiotic food, probiotic bacteria. The earliest recorded use of probiotics was in the fourth century China and it was called golden soup. And this was used as a fecal microbiota transplant or poop transplant at this time, which I thought was very interesting that they were trying that in the fourth century China. Kind of gross, but hey, you know, experimentation is how we come up with really good medicine. That's all I'll say. The earliest theorized use of probiotics was is assumed to be in 10,000 BCE in Mesopotamia. So between all of those times and now, in Europe, they were using probiotics in the late 1500s through the 1800s. And then kind of backing up a little bit, archaeological evidence shows use of probiotics as fermented foods in about 9,000 BC in Sweden and 8 to 7,000 BC in China. So they've been kind of used throughout history, sometimes documented, sometimes undocumented. But what I found very interesting is my professor was saying that these bacteria have evolved with us in a similar way that dogs evolved from wolves, meaning dogs once were wolves. We all know that. And over time, they've evolved to become 
our pets, the domestic dog, all sizes, super cute, very sweet. And my professor was saying in a similar way, bacteria have evolved to live in harmony with us over the last 10,000 years in the same way that dogs have, which I thought was really cool because I never would have thought about that. But it makes sense because there are a lot of really harmful bacteria in the same way that wolves would still be harmful to us if we met them in the wild. But there's a lot of harmony we could have with these bacteria, same way with dogs. It makes me think of all of our gut bacteria as like my little pets inside of me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. When you put it that way, yes. Pet bacteria. (laughs) Yes. Well, and on that note, the NIH says that the human body has three, sorry, 30 trillion human cells. And guess how many bacterial cells? 38 trillion. So we have 8 trillion more bacteria cells than human cells in our body, which... Again, little pet bacterias all over us, helping to take care of us. So cute. (laughs) And we got to feed them with prebiotics. Keep everything moving right. So kind of moving on into modern era times. Into modern times. The first commercialization for disease treatment was in 1935, Japan came out with Yukult, which is just one bacteria strain meant to help with digestion, disease treatment. In the 1940s in North Africa, there was some use of probiotics to treat diseases that cause diarrhea. Fast forward to now, probiotics are being used to treat more than just diarrhea, And there's a lot of research going into this to treat a whole host of disease. Um, IBD is a big one, irritable bowel disease. So that's Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, treatment of mental health. So there's some evidence that probiotics can improve depression symptoms. It can potentially improve nutritional deficits. It can potentially also help with weight loss. So with obesity or other metabolic syndromes. The only thing with all of this is that regulation of probiotics is really hard because is it a drug? Is it a dietary supplement? A food? Right now, they are classified as food, but that could definitely change in the future, especially when they are used more commonly to treat diseases. It's a hugely growing industry, and right now it is mostly used for diet supplementation. So that's probably why it's classified as a food. With all this, the most interesting thing I learned was the fact that you can get a poop transplant. So in your large intestine, your colon, you have a ton of bacteria that help finish extracting the nutrients that you need from your poop before you excrete it. And so everyone has like sort of an sort of a unique microbiome in their large intestine and poop transplants in rats have been shown to help significantly with obesity which I find very interesting but I guess it makes sense because if one person who's has a really well functioning digestive system especially the microbiome of their colon that person's microbiome is transported into someone who might not have as efficient of 
a microbiome at extracting all the nutrients, it would make sense that the person who might have the less efficient microbiome now can benefit from the good microbiome and maybe lose weight. Yeah, very similar to just a general organ transplant. You know, if you have a non-functioning kidney, of course, you're not going to be reabsorbing nutrient or reabsorbing ions like you're supposed to. You're not going to be excreting waste like you're supposed to. So, of course, getting a transplant of a working kidney, you're going to be a lot healthier. You know, it's just it's very simple, I think. Yeah, I would definitely agree. It's simple, but I should say a simple concept. It is yeah. a simple concept, but it's out of the box because are poop transplants going to be considered as organ transplants? Is poop an organ? That's kind of something that's being debated by people right now in this space and will be very interesting to see how that plays out because when you start doing this more on a large scale to treat disease you're going to need to have regulations and regulations start with classifications of, okay, let's define what this is so that we know how to move forward with it. So there's still a lot to be developed in this area, but it's very exciting and very interesting in my opinion. Yeah. I think it just kind of goes back to what we were saying before about all of this GI block feeling like there's so much more to explore and so much more to learn It's just a fascinating field. Yeah, I would definitely agree. So these two things that we covered today are just kind of touching the surface of the iceberg of what we explored in the GI unit, but there's still so much more to be explored. So I'm excited for the future of this field. Me too. Thank you for listening today. And if you'd like, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at howdyfromhoustonpodcast at gmail.com and we'll catch you on the next episode. See ya.